0: okay (laughs) um did you see the news article about that um i forgot his i don't know the name but this gentleman who was executed like 4 years ago and they just um, decided to analyze the murder weapon or something and turns out someone else's DNA oh. was on it and the entire time he was like I'm innocent. Yes, I did see. Yeah. I this did see is why the article, we need, to- <laughs> but
1: I didn't see that they had executed someone.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, they they had executed him. His like final words were like I'm innocent. Um and turns out he was innocent and this is why the death penalty is a problem
1: what state was it that just added like a firing squad to their execution style? let's find out hold on firing squad i just saw some news about it and i was like well that's not weird yeah i think it's south carolina
0: Oklahoma, Mississippi, yep. Utah, and South Carolina give inmates on death row the option to die by firing squad. Cool.
1: What the heck? Yeah. Is it 2021? Like, <laughs> right. I, I, I just
0: don't understand. Like, it just, I'm not going to be able to wrap my head around, like, any execution, let alone execution by firing squad. Like, I don't.
1: Well, anyway. that can just like I guess with any execution it just has the potential to go so poorly, but especially with a firing squad.
0: Mhm. Like what if they don't die? Do you just keep shooting till they do?
1: <laughs> I guess. Also that's just so unfair because if you think about it, you're making a person like take the life of someone else and the psychological effects that that can have even if they're like the worst human being in the world um that still weighs on you as a person yeah i don't get it Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc.
0: If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show.
1: And give us a follow on social media at pink collar underscore pod. Um yeah, well, that being said, guys, we have our part two of the Chicago Kind of series, I guess you can call it. Um, I've been a terrible social media manager and didn't even put the first part. But you know what? You probably listen to it anyway. I'll get to it. Don't worry. Um, but so we have a couple other cases that we're going to cover today that are, you know, the women on murderesses row, just like uh, we talked about before. So if you haven't listened to our first episode, um, jump back and, and we recommend listening to that one first. We give like a little bit of context, a little bit of history, talk about like the journalists, really cool stuff. Um, And if you're enjoying listening to our podcast so far, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating if you like us. And if you don't, do it anyway, because it makes us feel better. And for every review we get, we'll donate a dollar to the National Center for Victims of Crime
0: yes cool um my upstairs neighbor is being ridiculous like like it sounds like they're throwing their body on the ground just I don't know if you can probably are but
1: (laughs) it's all good I've got uh not in the closet today so I've got some cars like I try (laughs) I tried to put my yoga mat up against the windows because I was like maybe it'll help drown out the sound but I don't really know yeah. I'm it sorry. is what it is, people. You're getting you're getting the sounds of Denver and Chicago. <sighs> Chicago. I'm in Denver. <laughs> where am I? I'm in Boston. Oh, my god. <laughs> oh, can you tell I'm losing my mind? OK.
0: So as usual, I spliced together a ton of different articles. This is from a long time ago. So who knows what's factual? Who knows if this makes sense? It is what it is, guys. Check out the sources. Um, okay. yeah. Deal with it. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Genevieve Forbes, a reporter, sat in the audience of yet another trial against a woman accused of murdering a man in her life. Using their beauty and charm, many of these women, guilty or not, were able to secure a not guilty verdict. But this defendant was different. Uh, she was a relatively recent immigrant from bari italy now living in on an illinois farm with limited english she was only able to speak effectively or to communicate effectively um with those who spoke the same bari's italian dialect um and there weren't many and so like italian i guess is like so different from this specific dialect that like people who spoke italian could kind of communicate with her but it wasn't um super great i guess maybe the equivalent of like me speaking like creole to a french person they'd be like i hear things that are familiar but what <laughs> um, so
1: when we were first moving here um and we were looking at apartments we originally were thinking about moving to the north end so like the little italy part of boston mm-hmm. and the landlord of one of the places that we were we were looking at. I bet it was this dialect, but like he spoke Italian, but it was like a specific dialect of Italian that only like one person was able to communicate with him. Even though there are a bunch of like people who speak Italian in the North End, mm. um, so it was an interesting process of like going back and forth. We didn't end up living there, but um, just just reminds me of that.
0: I remember when we visited and um, we were in like that pizza spot and like Darrell was trying to order. Oh and, like, the owner just, like, screamed at him. Not nice. Um, anyway. Um, so the They're Chicago- an interesting folk. <laughs> uh, the Chicago Daily Tribune writer took stock of the woman on trial and knew she was guilty. Why? Well, according to Genevieve's articles, this woman was grotesque. A crouching animal. A monkey. That made her guilty. I don't like this Genevieve woman. Just... To be clear that's not rude. cool that's um rude. and so the defendant isabella nitty uh nicknamed sabella lived in Stickney, illinois with her husband francesco
1: isn't it francesco i
0: don't care francesco francesco <laughs> like i think you could pr- pronounce it any way you want <laughs> just call him frank <laughs> that's cool
1: pronounce names.com <laughs>
0: Francesco Okay, you're right, Francesco Francesco Francesco. Um, So she lived in Illinois With her husband Francesco A.K.A. Frank In July 1922, Francesco Vanished from his farm Um, It was like a truck farm Or something, don't know what that means Um, Soon after A truck farm? That's what it said, a truck farm So maybe like a farm that like Grew stuff but didn't have livestock. They grew trucks, of course. They grew trucks. It was the like car capital of Illinois. (laughs) Um, Okay, so if um, it's a truck,
1: never mind. I'm this does not matter. Just tell your story.
0: Okay, so. In July 1922, Francesco vanished from his truck farm. Soon after, with no evidence, Sabella was charged for the murder of her husband that September. Peter Crudel, which I think I saw his Italian name was Pierto or something like that. Um, so he was the family farmhand and uh, he like lived on the property. Um, and he was supposedly, at the time, um sabella's lover and so he was a whopping 23 years her junior
1: so big deal how come everyone had lovers back then
0: you know something to do i guess i don't know i'm not 100 percent. sure netflix
1: so you just had to pick up a lover (laughs) yeah basically i guess we are hearing like murder cases so maybe it's more common that in murder cases there are you know i don't know it just seems kind of like a lot (laughs) well so
0: here's my thing i'm not sure i okay i don't necessarily think that while she was married to francesco that she was in a relationship with peter personally um i think that they maybe got together after francesco died and like the optics of that mm. was like not good for her um but well, yeah so also
1: like back then you didn't really marry for love as much as you did like a partnership mm-hmm. or like to have children or or whatever so maybe it's possible that people didn't mind if you had like a lover on the side mhm um and so
0: According to prosecutors, Sabella had her lover Peter beat Francesco to death. Then they allege Sabella had her and Francesco's 15 year old son, Charlie, help Peter dispose of his father's body. Despite this compelling tale of events, um, there wasn't actually any evidence to suggest that things actually occurred the way the prosecutors were alleging. Um, However, we all know how important the court of public opinion is. And so when Sabella and Peter got married the next March in 1923, everything seemed a little bit more suspicious and, you know, very much tipped the scales kind of against them. Mm Um, And so at the time that they were arrested and charged, um, the victim's body had not yet been found. And so this is all just a story, basically. No one's body was ever found. at least, not up until this point. And so, um, after she and Peter got married, like a few months later, a body was found in a drainage ditch. Investigators believed it to be the body of Francesco Nitti, um, but there was no evidence, no motive, and actually no proof that the decayed body was actually Francesco. Like it was just a body; they had no idea who it actually was. Mm. Um, well, they didn't have.
1: They definitely didn't have like DNA back then, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so. so
0: after, like, so despite, you know, having no clue if this body was actually Francesco, the prosecutors kind of ran with that. Because after being so unsuccessful in securing conv- convictions against other women who were charged with similar crimes, prosecutors were desperate for a win. And to them, Sibella lacked what many of the other similarly accused women had. She was not seen as traditionally beautiful. Prosecutors in the media leveraged this in real court and in the court of public opinion, hoping to sway things in their favor. Charlie, her son, who was originally arrested and charged for his supposed role in the murder, had his charges eventual- eventually dropped in exchange for testifying against his mother. And so my thought here is, like, here's this 15-year-old kid who's being charged with something that um, he likely didn't do I mean I don't think she did this crime so putting that out there and so I don't think Charlie had anything there's literally no
1: evidence yeah that this happened like it it, would be one like they don't have a body if did someone like see it go down like what where did they even come up with a story yeah and so I
0: think what happened is you have a 15 year old kid who's like being threatened with like being hung and like it's like what do you do you want to die or do you want to testify against your mom and so he like kind of acted in like a survivalist kind of instinct and so i'm sure like to me i think that's possibly why he agreed to testify against his mom Um, and so he was actually scheduled for a deposition in September 1923, but Charlie never made it to the deposition, and he was, like, never, like, seen again. Um, and so here, I think there's, you could go, like, two different routes for the theory. Like, did somebody harm him? Or my opinion is he was like, I can't testify against my mom. I don't want to go to prison. I'm getting the hell out of Dodge and, like, split. Um, That's Mm -hmm. my opinion Um, And so instead Prosecutors subbed in Charlie's brother uh, Sabella and Francesco's other son Stephen to testify against his mother And so I couldn't find any information To suggest what Stephen may have known Or like where he was When this alleged crime happened Or like why he was selected to replace Charlie But to me the fact that like he wasn't like, if he knew something and he wasn't considered, like, an initial witness or whatever, like, it's just a little fishy to me, because he would have mm-hmm. been if he knew something. Um, anyway, so, like, many women charged with murdering their boyfriends, lovers, and husbands in Chicago, Sabella was held in murderess's row. Sabella was actually granted the right to keep her four-year-old daughter with her in her prison cell. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing Because um, it's like, yeah, you're with your mom But you're also in prison at four so. Mm-hmm. Um, And so Six months into Sibella's stay on Murderous Row, Belva Gartner arrived On the prison scene Belva, being Belva, pretty immediately Hired Sibella to Clean her cell and to do her laundry um, Which Belva, I was pulling For you last episode, man <laughs> Come on So, and then the next month, Beulah, is it Anon or Anon? I
1: I said Anon, but I don't even know if that's right.
0: Okay, Beulah, from last episode, um, found herself also on Murderous's Row. Um, And so she, you know, went ahead and, like, also hired Sabella to do the same thing. Which, I don't understand how they're hiring people. Like, what are you paying her with? whatever. I also only read that in one source, so that source could be lying. I don't know. Um, And so in court, the prosecution ruthlessly leaned on Sabella's appearance. Prosecutor Milton Smith addressed the jury. Can you see that woman? No. She isn't a woman. She is a fiend. She is not a woman. Which... Rude. Um, In the papers... Chill
1: out, bro.
0: (laughs) Right? And in the papers, nothing about Sabella's appearance was off limits. Uh, They wrote rough hands, stubby fingers, dirt underneath her fingernails, an animal like Italian peasant, smelly, greasy, matted hair, anything they didn't like they wrote about in the cruelest way. And so that's like um, a very, you know, opposite kind of uh, reporting compared to, um, like Belva Gartner, who was like her dress, like hung on her body, call it like all these different, you know, nice ways of describing what she looked like. Um, and so according to Sabella, Stephen is actually the one who murdered his father. She insisted that Stephen murdered Francesco over $400. Um, and so that's actually, like, 6300 in 2021. I mean, that's a lot of money to just give somebody. Like, even if it's your son, like, it's a lot of money just to hand over. Um, and so... But Stephen, also not
1: enough to kill someone over. <laughs>
0: um, but you need to know the reason that Stephen needed the money. Oh. Um, oh, okay. Stephen had needed the money to marry some girl. So obviously... He needed to kill his dad, right? Sarcasm, guys. That's not... Obviously. That's not... Obviously. (laughs) Um, And so, Francisco either refused to or wasn't able to give Stephen the $400. And so, I wouldn't be surprised if he... or Actually, I believe that he wasn't able to give Stephen the $400. These people, like, owned and worked on a farm in 1922. How, like, lucrative is that, you know? Um... And so, yeah, so he wasn't able to give Stephen the $400, and the two ended up in a fist fight. Um, She said that Stephen beat his father so severely that he was unwell for several days. Three days after the fight, Sabella claimed that Francesco went on a walk in the fields on or near the property, and that's when he disappeared. Mysteriously, the family's entire savings of $300 also disappeared steven um and so never mind sabella's version of events and never mind the fact that there was literally zero evidence against her or peter sabella had three strikes against her she was an immigrant she was supposedly having an affair and worst of all she was ugly um and so the two were convicted of murdering francesco the jury read their verdict we the jury find the de- defendant isabella nitty otherwise known as sabella nitty guilty of murder and we fix her punishment to death the courtroom was silent sabella became the first woman sentenced to death in the state of illinois her fate had been sealed she was to hang in 90 in 95 days but she hadn't understood a word of what had just happened so like The verdict was read And she's like I don't speak English So Um And so When they were finally able To translate the verdict To her Sabella cried She repeatedly Rammed her head Into a wall Trying to commit suicide Um Mm. And then Um so like as this verdict was like getting around the entire italian american community was like furious um at least in um chicago or illinois they were furious and a lot kind of began like rallying behind her and so a 23 year old um A 23-year-old attorney named Helen Cerisi, or Ceris, I don't know, I'm gonna say Cerisi. She had been following Sabella's case in the newspaper. When she read the verdict, she knew something was wrong. Sabella's original trial attorney was either severely, severely incompetent or he simply didn't care enough to provide his client a quality defense. He had asked ridiculous questions during the trial. Like, at one point, he questioned why the body that they found didn't have underwear. And, like, like his line of questioning was basically, like, did the prosecutor steal his underwear? It's like, what does that have to do with anything, you weirdo? Um, and so Helen who okay. was yeah, Helen who was Italian American worked in an office with several other Italian American lawyers and together they discussed Sabella's case. To them, they saw ways to get the verdict overturned, but they were worried about what attaching themselves to such a controversial case and potentially losing an appeal could do to their careers. But Sabella needed justice. And so together, the five of them, led by Helen, decided to take Sabella's case. Although Helen spoke Italian and Sicilian, she didn't speak the Berese dialect that um, Sabella spoke. And so she and Sabella still had some, like, limited communication between them. Um, But Helen tried to make sure Sabella knew that she was going to do whatever she could to help her. Helen and Margaret Benelli who was one of the defense lawyers um like now working on sabella's case like he was she was his wife um they visited sabella nearly every week in um jail just to comfort her they would just sit with her and like try to talk with her and just be friendly just to help her um I don't know, get through this process kind of emotionally. Um, And so after filing an appeal with the Illinois Supreme Court, just weeks before the execution was scheduled, Helen and the other defense attorneys were able to get the execution suspended um, to give the Supreme Court time to review the case. Helen and Margaret saw an opportunity. If much of the reason Sabella was found guilty was due to her appearance, why not make her beautiful? They spent the next six months reinventing Sabella. The other inmates, including Belva and Beulah, held what they called jail school. They taught Sabella to replace her more rugged and her more Italian mannerisms with more dainty American ones. They practiced her English, and more importantly, they gave her a makeover with new clothes, dyed, dyed styled hair, um, in, in that was put like into like a. A bob, which was super popular back then, which, what a hairstyle. Um, and they gave her a manicure because, like, so many articles were about her nails. Um, and so, once the transformation was complete, her team of Italian-American lawyers prepared for battle. Um, suddenly, the media's opinion and reporting of Sabella changed. Once um, they were, like, granted a new trial... And so they were, at this point, just kind of waiting for the trial to, like, be scheduled. And so the date just kept getting moved back and back. Um, But now with her new appearance, even Genevieve described her as a butterfly. With her new makeover, the public and the court now saw Sabella as someone familiar. A sweet American mom who lived next door. Someone innocent. So whatever um and then the pro so the, the prosecution power
1: had- of a makeover <laughs>
0: um and so the prosecution had no new evidence and with their lack of evidence of peter and sabella's guilt to begin with the charges against sabella and peter were eventually dropped sabella's journey had a lasting impact on murderous roe jail school had now become a fundamental part of the cell block and accused women who weren't as fortunate as women like Belva and Beulah learned to transform themselves into how, into what an all male jury saw as an innocent woman, someone beautiful. Um, And so in the musical Chicago, Sabella, I think inspired the character, maybe Honeyak. I don't know what the character's name is, Um, but she was like, cast or written as an ugly Hungarian ballerina um and so that's like most of her story after I think um like Peter even though they were married he like split he like left the country um and then like married someone else I think in his like home area of Italy um so that wasn't great for him and I have no idea what happened to Stephen but I don't wish him well
1: <sighs> that's my case <laughs> we don't like Stephen here no yeah it doesn't sound like she had anything to do with it at all plus too like you can't i feel like blame women back then for getting remarried quickly because women didn't have as much opportunity to like work or provide for themselves especially if you have children it's like okay like what choice do you really have but to get remarried right away mm-hmm. like if your husband's gone i don't know it doesn't yeah. it's not like suspicious to me that someone will get like Ooh, i agree and then on top of that i
0: assume like i feel like women just got rights so like 1922 like they had just or what white women had just gotten like the right to vote right um And Mm so we're talking about like 1922. And so my, I assume that she wasn't allowed to own property. And so now if her husband is dead, what happens to the farm that they used to make their living and that she lives on? And so I feel like Mm -hmm. it makes sense that she would marry someone who could now take over the property so that she could still have a home. And I'm sure in her mind, she's like, I didn't do this. So like, of course, they're not going to convict me um and so i don't know i I, I've, it, I there's so much sense i think that is that can be made out of like her like moves i guess after her husband died um but yeah like prosecutors during this time kind of sucked so
1: <laughs> also yeah it's just so mean and unfortunate that In this, yeah, in the case of the other woman we talked about, Beulah and Belva last week, it was like, oh, they're so beautiful and wonderful and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think, ooh, my stomach's growling. I think you'll find my case interesting too, because it was a case that a woman in this time, because we talked about that, how like many women were being found kind of like innocent or not guilty, rather. just because the juries were all male, they thought the women were beautiful, they were hesitant to convict them. Um, but in this case, I'm glad that it it sounds like justice in a sense was served because she didn't get put into jail. Yeah,
0: forever. Yeah, and also shout out to her very like badass lawyer.
1: Real. So, for like the thousandth time, (laughs) shout out to Douglas Perry, the author of The Wolf Woman. Um, So, this is like a short novel that I read in order to prepare for this. So, there's obviously a lot more information there. So, if you're interested in hearing more about Kitty Mom's story, I would recommend that as a resource. You can get it for like 99 cents on Amazon. Um, So, I'll be telling the story of Kitty Mom. So, Kitty's mother immigrated from Austria-Hungary in 1911 with 7-year-old Kitty. Her parents weren't rich, but they worked very hard for what they had. Kitty herself worked since the age of 14, but also enjoyed hanging around the world's largest amusement park. She got married at a young age to Max Baluk, but he couldn't stand her and was physically abusive towards her so at 19 years old kitty was afraid she wasn't very pretty she wasn't a great cook and she struggled to take care of their daughter that they had together whose name i think was also Catherine, but went by to- tootsie um so when kitty met Otto mom she felt really special but Otto wasn't the best dude he was a known criminal and had been in prison for two years for killing a guy before uh, you know, all qualities that we look for. Yeah, uh, he sounds
0: so great. <laughs> in like... a man. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Swoon.
1: <laughs> um. Yeah, one thing I will say, one bone I have to pick with Douglas is that I feel like he constantly blamed, like, Kitty's taste in men. It was like, oh, she didn't have the best taste in men. It's like, how about we just blame the men for being shitty to her? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure he didn't. Well, I...
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, it's both. I think it's more so, like, yeah, the men the man is at fault, but I don't know. I think there's there's obviously so many factors that go into like the cycle of choosing like, people who resemble the way you've been treated in the past and things like that. You know, so. Of course.
1: <laughs> um, so, Kitty and Otto, they got together. I think I addressed this later in my script, but they have kind of like a non-traditional wedding ceremony but um so on november 4th 1923 otto um woke kitty up from her sleep and was like let's go for a ride their pal eric noren was driving the car um that evening al stemwood what he who's watchman um his security service lincoln protective was not doing so hot And this was impacting his marriage. Um, So he was 39 years old, he worked a lot of hours. Um, That particular night he was working at Delson Sweater Factory on Chicago's Northwest side. And he had Eddie Lehman, an 18 year old who was tagging along to help out. Um, So Otto, Kitty, Eric, they were all headed to the sweater factory. They were kind of a gang gang of crooks, they liked to Steal a lot of things, uh, but this particular night ended up very different than the rest of their heists. So, Kitty was hiding by the back entrance. Eddie saw her because um, they were, uh, him and Al were driving by and insisted they stop the car. Um, he wasn't much older than she was, she was just this little 20 year old girl. So, obviously, that looked a little bit unusual to see at that time of night. So, they stopped the car and asked what she was doing. Otto showed up in the doorway and shot his gun. Kitty screamed and clapped her hands to her ears. At that point, Eddie tripped and stumbled. He tried to run away, but he fell. Kitty also tried to run away, but she wasn't able to find the getaway car. There was another gunshot. Kitty put her hand to her head and felt blood. She tried to show Otto, like, I think I just got shot, but he brushed her off. Otto fired another shot, hitting Al in the arm, and then Otto picks Kitty up. Threw her in the car and they drove off. Al took off on foot, trying to follow the car. He shot into the air and hoped someone would hear and call the police. So that's when Detective Sergeant Paul Meekle showed up. <laughs>
0: Meekle. <Meikle. laughs>
1: okay. Um, so at that point, Eddie was still alive. There were scratch marks on the doors, tools scattered everywhere, blood all around, but it was pretty clear that there had been a robbery. They lifted Eddie into the car to take him to Alexian Brothers Hospital. When they asked if he got a good look at the attackers, Eddie told them "Go or, to get Bockelman." So Walter Bockelman was a 28-year-old small-time criminal. Eddie had caught him a few nights before trying to break into the store, and Walter had threatened him. So this is perhaps why he might have mistaken Otto for him, or maybe he just assumed, he didn't get a good look at the guy, but assumed it might have been uh, Walter. So uh, the cops were desperate to get a positive identification as soon as possible because it didn't look like Eddie was going to make it through the night. They knew Walter liked to play craps, and since cops provided protection for most of the games in town, they were able to track him down with ease. They brought him to Eddie's bedside, and he confirmed, yes, this was the guy. Next, they brought in Margaret Becker to the Sheffield police station to identify the shooters. She had seen the whole thing happen from her bedroom window. They put Walter in a lineup, and it- so it was like Walter and a couple policemen in their undershirts, which I feel like doesn't seem like the best kind of pool that you want to take for a, a lineup, but what do I know? Um, She said Walter kind of looked like the guy who did the shooting. Also, too, it was, like, dark, and she was seeing it from her window. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Seems kind of And
0: in general, eyewitness testimony, like, isn't always...
1: Not ideal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So she was like, maybe it was him. Uh, They also brought in Al, who understandably was... A little shaken up from being shot and uh he looked at walter and was like maybe from the shoulders down it looks like him but i can't be sure which is like shoulders down is the least important part <laughs> like you want to know what the person's face looks like <laughs>
0: i recognize his dad bod um <laughs>
1: uh walter had nothing to say except talk to my lawyer um, he had a p- lawyer from a previous case that he was like, yeah, call this guy. But it turns out Walter never paid him, so he had to wait for another lawyer to come along. Uh, Al told the police about the girl he had seen. He was sure he would have an easier time identifying her. And Margaret Leimbacher felt the same. Becker, sorry, felt the same way. She recalled she was small, only about 20 years old. She wore a small toque, a plaid half-length coat, and a dark crepe duchin. Dress with four. Sorry, don't ask. I don't know. Four pointed panels on the dress. So very distinctive outfit. Um, The police looked for the last girl that had been seen with Walter, Ethel Beck. So Ethel was a sex worker. Um, When they brought her in, she was wearing a ratty silk dress with a fake fur coat. Not exactly the posh woman described by Margaret. Another thing about Ethel is that she had blonde hair, whereas. Uh, Kitty had brown hair, so there was um, kind of a discrepancy uh, in the identification, but She Ethel had actually known Al for a long time since she was a little girl because he'd been working in her neighborhood. So they took Ethel into a room for an interview and she told them everything. She had been abused by a playground monitor in the fifth grade. Her parents had died when she was young and her brothers were put into a boarding house and she lived with a family and she wasn't being treated well. And she also confessed to the story that they were trying to get her to confess to. And I wonder how many, like, leading questions were there or whatever else, because clearly she wasn't there and had no idea what happened that night. Um, But she confessed anyway. You know, it sounds like she had a really hard life so far, a really difficult time, too, with authority. So uh, they brought her to a table after she confessed to the crime and sat her across from Walter. She said hello. And Walter looked right at her and didn't say a word. After the assistant state attorney read the statement that she had made, Walter jumped to his feet. He said he had never seen Ethel before in his life, and he had an alibi, but he just needed to get uh, his lawyer there first before he told them about it. So I wonder if he was doing something else illegal, <laughs> and that's why he didn't want to say what his yeah. alibi was outright. Yeah, but he's like, well, I was selling crack. But... <laughs> yeah, down the street. Don't worry about it. Um, so Ethel crumbled after his outbursts, agreeing that they had never met. She started to sob, and the police regretted putting them in a room together. They wanted her to rat Walter out, but it wasn't looking like Ethel was going to be their star witness. Her last involvement with the criminal justice system was at being held at Lawndale Hospital, where a doctor said she was a weakling and a high-grade moron. I think it was more of a medical term back then. Either way, <laughs> meme. Um, right. So after she had been taken out of the room, Ethel changed her story again saying, no, 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 it was him. I was just afraid seeing him like face to face. Uh, So that's why I took, took my word back. It didn't matter to the state's attorney that Ethel wasn't the most reliable witness. They drove her to the crime scene, showed her around describing where, and she described where Wally had broken in, although everything was like all over the place. So it was probably pretty easy to tell. Um, and at 6 a.m. that morning, Otto and Kitty showed up at the North Northside office of Dr. Henry Mall. They waited for the doctor to arrive while hiding out of sight. Uh, although he was alone, he wasn't too scared of the pair. They looked pretty pitiful at that point. Otto had been up all night, was exhausted, and Kitty was just tiny girl covered in blood. Like any good medical professional, Dr. Maul asked what happened. Kitty's story was bit all over the place. First, she said she shot herself. Then she said, an outsider shot her. Then she shot the She said she hit her head with something really heavy. Dr. Mall was like, okay, whatever. Um, this really needs to be taken care of at a hospital. There's one right up the street. I recommend you go there. Otto was like, no, you need to treat her right now. Dr. Mall said, okay, but I'm going to call the police then. Otto then threatened the doctor. Nobody was going to call the police. Otto grabbed Kitty, and they left, and Dr. Maul immediately called the police. So at this point, uh, Walter had secured a lawyer who brushed Ethel off like dandruff on his shoulder. Desperate for attention, Ethel spilled her guts to a female reporter, Genevieve Forbes, which is the same reporter you were talking about in your story. Um, Mm -hmm. Like Maureen, if you remember her from our first episode, Genevieve was not to be mistaken for one of the sob sisters that just totally sided with women on murderers' row. Made them seem like, you know, they weren't the problem. It was just that drugs and liquor. Um, So she was going to write a good story. She wrote that Ethel was 19 years old and she had six aliases, an unknown Greek husband, and was a frequent flyer in the night court. She had never learned the Ten Commandments, but had broken most of them. Genevieve had some (laughs) s ha ha Um, so Genevieve wrote that Ethel said she was present at the scene when Walter tried to pull a job, um, at the, uh, I wrote Delson Manufacturing Company. Was that the same place that I wrote before? I thought it was a sweater company. I don't I didn't read through this. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Ethel said she was there at the night of the crime. Let's say that. Um, so that story was published. Otto was on the run, literally, uh. The cops had kind of found him, but they were, so they were, like, chasing him down the street. And, but the cops were in pretty bad shape and couldn't make it running past two or three blocks. So he was like, ah, I'll be fine. I'm I'm going to make it. Uh, his luck ran short and he was swiftly. Uh, oh, get it. His luck ran short. <laughs> okay, I forgot Rachel. to put the emphasis there. And he was swiftly arrested. <laughs> Otto started to confess to stealing silk shirts, shoes, furs, evening gowns for the purpose of reselling them. The police arrested his accomplices at that point, including Eric Norwin, the getaway car driver. And at first, Otto confessed to the burglaries, but had not confessed to the murder of Eddie Lehman. The cops roughed him up a bit uh, and then pulled one of the old guard officers in to play good cop, offering Otto a cigarette. So at this point, Otto kind of spilled his guts. It's surprising what being nice to a person can, can get them to do. So he told the whole story. He went in while Kitty stayed outside. He said that Kitty started shooting first, but he didn't know if her bullet hit Eddie, but he started firing past her. And one of the bullets must have grazed her head, but it was probably her that shot Eddie, which is not true because Kitty didn't even have a gun. But the assistant state's attorney, John Sparrow, was like, crap, I already lined up this other guy, and now this looks really bad. And John was taking a lot of bribes from gangsters, so he needed his conviction rates to look good. So he tried asking if Walter had put him up to it. Uh... And even though he was offered a literal like get out of jail free card, like he could have just blamed the whole thing on Walter, and they would have been like, wonderful, great, this is what we wanted to do this whole time. Otto was like, no, now's the time that I'm going to be very honest. Um, He said Athel and Walter had nothing to do with the job. More than had no more to do with that job than a rabbit. Maybe that's like an old timey saying. Oh, okay. You know, the rabbit wasn't had nothing to do with it, neither did them. Otto didn't realize the death penalty was on the table. He had just gotten his two years before when he killed someone. So he got really nervous when he found that out. And he threw Kitty totally under the bus when he heard that. And he was like, no, no, no. It was definitely her bullet that that killed Eddie. Wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. So... Otto started to paint a picture of his wild two-gun wife. He said it was definitely her bullet. Uh, She liked to carry around all these guns. So the cops showed up to their apartment to arrest Kitty. Even though she was there and she had answered the door, she said, no, there's no Miss Mom here. And technically she wasn't lying because legally she was still Catherine Ballack. So she was still legally married to Max at that point. Like I said, her and Otto didn't have a real marriage. But so Kitty said she didn't want these strange men in her home while she waited for Miss Mom to show up. Uh, And Kitty had her 11-year-old sister, Elizabeth, help her sneak out of the front door. When the police realized the woman had vanished, Liz quickly confessed that it was indeed her sister. And she warned them that kitty had a revolver in her left sleeve and that she really doesn't like the cops at all Who so does? <laughs> kitty escaped to indianapolis she hitched up with a roommate there named blanche king blanche noticed a giant raw scar on kitty's head and cash kitty's like yeah my husband's jobby we were doing a job on a sweater joint uh which i feel like would not be my reaction uh meanwhile the papers in chicago they were calling her wolf woman and tiger girl kitty was eating it up she loved that they made her seem like such a a bad i don't want to say the swear word but you know what i mean um so (laughs) but she couldn't stay in hiding forever she needed to stay in touch with her daughter tootsie who was being watched by her mother The police tracked her down by intercepting one of her letters and tricking her into coming to the post office to sign for a decoy letter. But Kitty wasn't a dum-dum, so she brought someone with her to sign for the letter. And when the police arrested him, Kitty took off. The man, Victor Capron, refused to give up any information about Kitty's whereabouts. So even though it would have been very easy for Kitty to escape and never be found, she needed to see her daughter. Within a week of escaping the police at the post office, Kitty turned herself in to the Hudson Avenue Police Department. Based on the newspaper's descriptions, they expected Kitty to be some terrifying, like, two-gun tiger woman. But she was just like a small 20-year-old girl, essentially. She confessed right away and just requested that she would be able to see her daughter. Kitty told them the truth. She didn't have a gun her husband fired a shot at the watchman and he accidentally shot her and afterwards they fled the scene kitty didn't blame otto at all for confessing she thought they may have forced him into it while in her cell she cried out and kicked the concrete walls begging to see him again her real husband max beloke sent a divorce petition to kitty while she was in jail he claimed that she was getting together with all kinds of lewd men and that Tootsie wasn't his real daughter. This made Kitty upset. The only other man she had been with was Otto, and that was because Max had pretty much decided he was done with her at that point and he hit her, and that's not cool. Mm-hmm. So she wrote a letter to Otto and then to her mother and m- attempted to take her own life. Um, so she had tried to hang herself in the jail but luckily the prison matron found her and quickly took her down her neck was severely burned uh, but was intact so the case ended up being not surprisingly very crazy there were two sets of possible killers two confessions and two sets of eyewitnesses the prosecutor of the case decided to let them all lay it out before the grand jury and the jury could decide who was in the alley when eddie was murdered On February 18th, 1924, Kitty entered the courtroom. I can't talk today. (laughs) Otto pleaded guilty to murder, but wouldn't take the blame for killing Eddie. He said three shots were fired, but he was only responsible for one. He looked directly at Kitty and said she was responsible. Kitty didn't think anyone would believe him because she didn't have a gun. Next, Eric Norrin confessed that he drove the car that took Otto and Kitty to the scene of the crime. I don't think it doesn't look like he had any idea who was firing these shots. Um, But there was good news for Walter. The state's attorney office declared in court that they believed Ethel Beck was below normal intelligence and didn't know what she was doing when she said Walter was the killer. So the charges against Walter and Ethel were dropped. Kitty's lawyer, J.J. McCarthy, But it's J, so it's J-A-Y, and then middle initial J. J -J. J J-J. J-J. I gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) J-J. I don't know how to, like, differentiate Uh, McCarthy. He believed he could get Kitty off. She was young and white, and so far the only woman who had on Murderous row that had ended up being convicted were black women or immigrants. So there were white women who had even conf- literally confessed to murders and had gotten off because of the all-male juries like our two previous cases it was like okay they clearly did it but the juries were like oh no she didn't
0: what's new what's new
1: <laughs> um, so the papers ended up pulling back from their wolf woman two gun narrative now painting kitty as a loving mother who had just chosen the wrong guy Maureen Watkins, from our last episode, wasn't reporting on Kitty's case, but she watched Genevieve Forbes in action and was beginning to learn about her new trade. So maybe we did these episodes out of order. I don't know. Um, But as the trial carried on, it was clear that Kitty was going to need to testify to save her reputation. By this point, Kitty was not doing well. She had collapsed in court and needed to be carried off on a stretcher. Before getting on the stand, she could barely walk. Kitty's nerves showed, and she had to bite her lip not to cry. She wasn't the ruthless wolf woman the papers had described. Her lawyer showed Kitty didn't have the best of luck with men. She got pregnant at the age of 16. Um, she had been married to that Max guy. And again, like I said, this book was very much like, ah, yeah, she just didn't know how to pick him, but... Also, too, let's hold them accountable. Anyway, um, so Kitty described what happened the night of November 3rd. She said she'd never carried or fired a gun in her life. After her testimony, the assistant state attorney instructed the jury to treat Kitty the same as any other defendant, regardless of sex. After an hour and 20 minutes, the jury found Catherine Belok Mom guilty of murder in manner and form as charged with in the indictment. Kitty began screening. The jury said her punishment, she would at least be spared the death penalty and her punishment would be life in prison. Kitty was a model prisoner and was known for her cheerful demeanor. She desperately wanted to win parole so she could be reunited with her daughter. But Kitty didn't have any luck. She died on December 27th, 1932 of pneumonia at the age of 28 years old. That is the story of Kitty Mom.
0: Poor Kitty.
1: (laughs) I know. It's just so disappointing compared to the first two cases where it's like, literally, they did everything wrong. And the men were just like, oh, geez, yeah, we'll let you off. Mm -hmm. And like, she was a mother, too, in this case. Um, And she. (sighs) What a tragic. Well, too, isn't that's how uh, Beulah died, was from pneumonia. We need better health care back then.
0: (laughs) Yeah, better health care in prisons, um, then and now, please.
1: Um, I was just reading an article about Louisiana, I think, about how uh, they let doctors who have been like, they have lost their license, uh, operate in prisons. Like, that's the only place that they can go. So it's like, great, these doctors aren't good enough for us, but they're good enough for, for jails.
0: Yeah, is that, like, good or bad?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think it would be on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't... Depending on what the doctor was, like, charged with, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that they could certainly... I, well, I think, too, even if doctors lose their licenses, they can get them back if they petition. Or, like, if they're, like, suffering from addiction, they can go through treatment or whatever. So, yeah, mm. it depends, I guess. But if they're just, like, a really terrible doctor then, like, how is that fair? It's not. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show.
0: If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24 seven and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor.
1: You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar,
0: a True Crime Podcast.